You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. It is our hope that this teaching helps you on your mission to make the gospel unignorable in your city. For more information, visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing this morning? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Unless you're rooting for the Chiefs, then I hope you have a horrible day. No, I'm playing. Um, so uh, my name is Scott Mayhem, the director of 514 Student Ministries, and it's a pleasure to greet you all this morning. I got one, one whoop. I like that. I appreciate that. Uh, here at Providence, we have a simple vision. That's to make the gospel ignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe that they are the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And today we're going to be continuing our series through 1 Corinthians called Dear Church, where we want to consider the call to submit to the Lordship of Christ in every sphere of our life. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, there should be a black hardcover Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift. And again, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, that there is, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did uh, baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, uh, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. It's a great day to worship the Lord together. As Scott had mentioned, we uh, started a series last week in 1 Corinthians. We're very excited to be walking through uh, this book this year. It's a book that is chock full of practical wisdom for the church of God, and we're excited to address it. Um, Just kind of in way of introduction, uh, 1 Corinthians has a lot of what I would call family talks, all right? It's uh, basically he's talking to uh, this local church, and he's addressing both maybe some letters they probably wrote to him, asking questions, kind of a Q&A type thing. And then as we see, he's also hearing things from people about what's going on in the church. And so he's kind of writing to really address and kind of help them shape and form uh, who they are. And so for us, walking through this as a church, really good. We get to address a lot of things. Some of these are kind of tough subjects. Some are not so tough. Um, there's a lot of great and glorious truths in this book as well. But one thing I thought would be helpful to frame our conversation today, and you probably have heard the language, like you have the universal church, right? So we call the capital C Catholic church or capital C church might be another term. Um, and then you have the local expressions of that church, which looks very different around the world. And many sort of cases, but that's more of what may be referred to as the little C church. I don't really prefer that terminology. It's what's used, okay? So you have the universal church, and then you have the local expression of each individual uh, church body, okay? And it's important to frame that because 
there are lots of things to say about the uh, you know universal church, which is all of those who are in Christ, right? So everyone throughout all of history and every part of the world that has believed upon Christ and is saved is a part of the universal church, right? And there's some overarching principles for the universal church. But right here in Corinthians, Paul is turning to the local church, this local expression, which I, I, would, I would say by definition is a group of people that have professed faith in Christ and have committed in covenant relationship to one another uh, to live out um, the duties that the scriptures call us to live out, right? They meet together to uh, hear the preached word and partake in the, the sacraments. They committed to love one another and kind of be that local expression, to be generous to one another, etc. So I bring that up because uh, we're going to get very particular a little bit. There are some principles we're going to pull for the overall universal church, but in particular, I want to be practical today about what does it look like to have unity amongst the local body of believers. And so to kick it off before I pray, uh, and I actually just found out that it was actually used in the worship to read through as well. So uh, I don't apologize, but it is going to be repetitive, which is great for us. Uh, John 17. I want to read John 17. This is uh, the longest uh, recorded prayer uh, of Christ that we get, really one of the only ones. Um, you do get the Lord's Prayer and a few other things, but uh, it's amazing to see what Christ is praying about, particularly for the universal church. And I want this guiding principle that Christ prays for to be what kind of frames our conversation as we get into some of the practicals of what it means to be a part of a local body and not be divisive. Uh, so I want to read that together, starting in verse 6. Bear with me. It's a little bit long, but it is the word, and that's what we came here for. So amen to that. Um, so we'll read it and then we'll pray and hop into our text today. So let's look at John chapter 17, starting in verse six. Here's what it says. This is Jesus praying to the father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's where he kind of focuses in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and in particular for this prayer of your son, Jesus Christ, that we have recorded in our scriptures. God, thank you for uh, Christ praying for us, praying these things, that we would be one as you are one. And so, God, I ask that as we walk through your word today, that you would help it to be practical, help us to gain wisdom and knowledge that would allow us as a local body, your church, to be able to walk in unity and not division. We pray against the enemy's designs that would want to destroy the church and cause division. May it not stand. May you give us power as we remember your gospel as we remember forgiveness and grace and joy, may we extend that to those around us so we could be one body with one mind, one accord, one aim to honor you and obey your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> I, I wanted to read that text. I just wanted to frame that conversation. There's a lot Jesus said in there. I'm not going to impact all of it, uh, unpack all of it right now. But essentially what he's saying is he's saying, as he prays to the Father, that just as Christ and the Father are one, that we as fellow believers and throughout all time and space would be also one together, okay? This is big. This is awesome. It's grand, right? He is praying that we would all be one as his body. And so this principle is important as we discuss unity because why is unity so important in the church? Well, Christ prayed for it. That's why. Right, Christ uh, asked God that this would happen, and there's many blessings. Uh, and Alec talked about a few of them up here at worship. But right, uh, Jesus says that when this happens, that the world would know that uh, Christ is the Messiah. The world would know through our love for one another that He's loved us, and this would speak to the gospel in all the world. Right, this is an amazing thing, but it's important for us. So as we dive now into some practicals in First Corinthians. I want us to keep that in mind. So the first thing I want to talk about is Paul gives a call to unity. So this is the call to unity that Paul gives here. Let's look at verse 10 together. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and same judgment. Okay, so Paul is here advocating uh, to the Corinthian church, his brothers and sisters in the faith under the banner in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they don't have division but come together in unity. All right, and he uses some pretty strong language here, and I want to divide that, but I do want to point out that the Greek word here for division, uh, I, I would like to translate it schism a little bit better. It's schismata. It's basically normally used in the New Testament as like you like ripped a net or a piece of garment that needs to be kind of sewn back together. Uh, but it's obviously used uh, as um, a metaphor for division happening within the church. And the reason why I'm being particular about the words is because you could be divisive about a lot of things, right? Like uh, like uh, Scott joked about San Francisco and the Kansas City teams playing today, all right, the sports ball going on today. Um, we could disagree on what team we're going to root for, but 
that's probably not going to cause a huge division. Now it can. I know it happens out there. Okay, I've seen wild sports fans. But there's uh, a lot of things we could be somewhat divided on that aren't really causing a schism of relationship and tearing apart the church. So my point in emphasizing this is that Paul is saying there's a real schism going on. Like there is actual uh, an issue here that could actually divide the Corinthian church for real, right? Like split them apart and have them go their separate ways. And Paul is going to plead, don't let this happen. Okay, don't let this happen. Um, and it's important. So let's go through a few points. What is Paul not saying? Okay, because he says that you agree in everything. Okay, that's a hard pill to swallow there. That you have the same mind, the same judgment, no independence. So what, what is Paul saying about that? Well, here's a few things he's not saying. He's not saying that the church must align in every minute, particular doctrinal issue. Okay, it is possible to exist in a church and we always use the language in our new members class about close-handed and open-handed issues. Um, but essentially, there are things fundamentally that we do have to agree on or there's no way we can have fellowship together. And we'll get into some of that. But there's also many things that we could passionately disagree on doctrinally. And it does not affect the way you and I live together in the church. Okay, now I get it. There's, there's, um, there's certain things that maybe you would consider not that important, but it is important to the function of the church. Yeah, it might be hard to have fellowship. Like if I walked into Episcopalian church right now, I just wouldn't fit in that well, you know. Um, and there's all kinds of differences where we may have on those things. But he's not saying that we have to align on every particular doctrinal issue. He's not saying that. Number two, he's not saying that everyone in the church better be voting for the same candidates or they can't get along, okay? That's not what he's saying. Now, I know bringing up politics from the pulpit is... Not always the most savvy, but I don't care. Um, That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the congregational members should all dress the same or enjoy the same hobbies. Okay, that's not what he's advocating for. He's not saying that there must be a full agreement on all the ways you live your life, like homeschool versus public school, and we could go down the list. Now, you can make some arguments, depending on the time and season of the world and what's going on in the world, that some of these things might bleed together. There might be issues that get bigger and smaller, depending on the season and time. But nonetheless, Paul is not advocating for a clone, right, for us to be clones of one another, but he's advocating for something, I think, deeper and more lasting. And that's what I want to talk about today. So what is Paul calling us to as a local expression of the body of Christ, as a group of believers that have committed in covenant relationship one to another to live this thing out called the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does that look like? Number one, he calls us to unity of speech. Now, I don't like the way the ESV translates this. They did put a note that says, oh, by the way, it literally says this. I like the little translation better. But the ESV says there when it says in uh, verse 10 that all of you agree It actually literally says in the Greek that all of you speak the same things. Now, speech um, was, uh, it's kind of a representative of your conduct. So I'm not saying it's a terrible translation. It might get the meaning, but I think it's important we take this literally because what does it mean to have the same speech, okay? Now, there's some churches that are kind of creepy and weird, okay, where they all talk the same thing, almost like to to the effect of being a cult, right? That's not what I'm arguing for. I mean, if we had to do it, we'll do it for sure. We're not ashamed to be weird. But what he means here is the manner of speech in which the church has at Corinth should be the same, okay? So, uh, oh, I knew I was going to do that. There we go. Now we're talking. So, this means a few things in my mind. One is that we speak the same truths about God and about the world. 
There are fundamentals that we hold on to that we should not let go and cannot let go, okay? So let me, let me put it this way. There are fundamental things, and this is what we've got by the closed-handed, open-handed, fundamental things we believe about God that if we were to compromise, there's absolutely no way we can have unity. Why? Because you're ripping out the foundation. If I say Christ is Lord and you say, I don't think so, but he was a good man, you and I have no fellowship. I can be kind to you, I can be cordial, but we cannot be a part of the same church. It's not possible, right? So when we talk about the same speech, there are some things we have to to share, right? This is why we have a statement of faith. This is why if you go through the Providence Road Academy, uh, that we're going to talk about the Nicene Creed. Because there are fundamental things that we must hold together as true. We must speak of them as truth. We must honor them as truth. We must read them as truth in the word. And if we can't do that, there's no way we're ever going to have unity, right? That is important. So I know I said don't minor or don't major on the minor doctrinal issues, but you definitely can't minor on the major or you're in for division, okay? Um, Just to name a few of these things. Uh, God's the creator of heaven and earth. We all believe that, right? That's fundamental, right? We believe that Christ is Lord. We believe that there's no other name in heaven and on earth by which you might be saved, but Jesus Christ is himself we believe that he lived the perfect life for us that he was dead buried and resurrected to newness of life and that all of those in him who believe in him will resurrect with him and will reign with him on the earth for all eternity we do not compromise on these things and there's more things that was an exhaustive list but my point is is that we must speak these things about sin about god we must hold these truths together or we cannot have unity And then maybe the reverse aspect of this is on moments or in moments when we have disagreements, I'm not, once again, not talking about those fundamental disagreements, but when we have disagreements, we also should speak the same things by not being gossips, backbiting, bitter people, okay? And we'll get into some of this more in the practicals, but we need to have unity of speech in that we don't slander our brothers and sisters, the poison of gossip and slander does not belong in the church of God. It's sinful and it's called out. It will be called out over and over again in this book in particular and throughout the rest of the Bible because it's evil. It's evil. If you get a problem with a brother or sister, you bring it to them and you work it out under the banner and forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. You don't work it out by backbiting. That can't stand, right? If you do that and you choose gossip and that speech, you're not speaking the same things in unity. It doesn't work, right? Try that in a marriage. It's not going to work. Try it in a church. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. And so there is a faithfulness in our speech in which we say, despite how I feel, I'm going to honor my brother and sister in Christ. And we got to take that step. So he tells us to be unified in our speech. Number two, he calls us to be unified in mind okay he says be of the same mind and the same judgment now this means in my poor definition that we are moving in tandem towards the same ultimate goals and purpose okay when it says be of the same mind and of the the same judgment once again it doesn't mean that we all think exactly the same thing all the time it doesn't mean there won't be disagreements but fundamentally when we talk about why does the world exists, why do I exist, and why do we exist as a church, that we are moving fundamentally 
in the same direction. We may take some different paths to get there within orthodoxy, but we are going to the same place. This is just very practical. If you're not going to the same place, it's not going to work, right? It's just not. And so it's important that we have these goals and purposes in mind. So as an example, we should have the same goals of glorifying God, right? Raising our children up in the fear of the Lord, whether you have children or not, collectively as a body. Wanting to fulfill the Great Commission as a church and honor God in that way in our city as he's called us to do. Uh, to love one another, submit under the preached word, repent of sin, rejoice in the gospel together, partake of the sacraments together. And these are some fundamental things, right, that we have to agree on. Hey, we're doing this together. We have the same purpose. That doesn't mean that, you know, we're not going to have disagreements on maybe how some of those things are done and we can work through that. But if we don't agree on the main things, once again, not just doctrinally, but functionally and purposefully, we're going to have issues again. We're not going to be of the same mind. There is a commitment at a deep level that we want to honor God and obey the scriptures. And we pretty much agree on how that's going to play out, right? That's an important for unity as well. And I always tell people, look, if, uh, you know, people that are coming and maybe considering membership, you might not agree with everything we do here, right? That's, that's just a truth. You're probably going to be hard pressed to find a church where you're like, man, they do everything exactly how I'd want them to do, right? We could all come up with a list of complaints, I'm sure, and I would not be offended at all. I'm sure no one on the elder board would be. Um, but there is a way in which, right, we agree on the purpose, where we're driving, right? That's important. And if you agree with that, come on, be a member. If you don't, find some place you agree with. The point is that we're submitting one to another in covenant community. Now, this is why chur- churches will develop unique expressions of what they mean by purpose, okay? Um, so when we say, for example, we get up every Sunday, we say, look, here at Providence, we have a single vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. Does that mean we believe that's all the scripture tells us to do? No. But what we're trying to do is express what we feel like God is calling us to do as a church, inviting you into that, right? And if you're a covenant member, you're a part of that. You've committed to that, do that to one another. Now, many churches come up with sayings to be very crafty and have good marketing and get people to come. But ideally, if you're doing it right, that's what you're trying to focus the goals. How are we going to honor Christ with our lives? What are we going to do together as a church? We want to be the same mind. And that's why we say it all the time. Um, we don't even, we made up a word, okay, in it. Unignorable is not a real word. And so if we wanted to be fancy, we would have done it differently. Um, so if you're a covenant member at Providence, you have committed in a real way to not cause divisions among the people, to be unified in mind and action. And thirdly, what we see here is not only unity of speech, unity of mind, but unity of lordship, right? We've all submitted under one master. This is why Paul, he could have used, and he will use later in Corinthians a couple of times. He could have used his authority as apostle and said, look, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, I'm telling you to do this. He could have done that, but what does he do? He says, brothers, I appeal to you under the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ to agree in everything and have no divisions among you. His appeal is the Lordship, right? This is important for us because this is fundamental. If you take away uh, the fact that we've all submitted to the Lordship of Christ, we got nothing unifying us together except maybe we like the same restaurants or we're rooting for the same Super Bowl team. We got nothing, right? It is the fact that we have submitted under the Lordship of Christ that makes you and I have the ability to not have division, but be unified. I can have more in common with someone halfway across the world 
that is not interested in anything I'm interested in because of the Lordship of Christ. The name of Christ is the banner in which all Christians have submitted under and will continue to serve under till the day that they die and go to be with Jesus. Amen? That is the banner that we submit under. So you and I can have our differences. And trust me, there are many differences to have. I know we all have strong opinions. But if Christ is the banner, then there are many things that we can work through. There are many things that we can have agreement in. And really the main things, the most important things we could submit under together. So if we're truly submitting to his lordship, unity, though imperfect, will be present among us. And that is just the truth. Okay, so that's the call to unity, okay? Unity of speech, unity of mind, unity of lordship. And I'm just going to this text. Uh, this argument is actually continues. So Paul's going to make an argument from chapter 1, verse 10, to basically halfway through chapter 4. It's basically one drawn-out argument of what's going on here. And so this is really going to kick off a whole series of how we don't have division and what should we, we should be working through. But um, needless to say that this is just kind of a jumping point. So I want to kind of, as best I can, focus on what's immediately happening. I am going to jump forward a little bit, but we'll get there. So we talked about the call to unity. Now I want to talk about the cause of division among the people. Okay, so he gives out a few helpful hints here. And remember, there's plenty more reasons for division. Okay, but this in particular is what Corinth is going through. So let's read verses 11 and 12 together. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. All right, so let's talk about what's happening here. So he says, look, first of all, I love that he's like, look, Chloe's boys are telling me what's going on. All right? Chloe's people are telling me this is what's happening. We don't know much about Chloe. I'm not going to get into that. It would all be speculation and guessing. But Chloe was probably a respected figure amongst the Corinthian church, whether she lived there or not. And so Chloe's people are like, hey, this is what's going on there. They're crazy, all right? Just tell them about them. And so Paul's going to get into it. So what do we see here? Number one, we see that somehow in the church at Corinth, political factions were forming, okay? I don't mean political like government politics, but like church politics, all right? You've seen this, all right? You've seen the crazy stories where, like a, a deacon board gets the pastor thrown out and it's crazy. The church divides and lots of things happen. Uh, or you see this in churches all the time where they stage a coup and take over, right? Um, but what was happening here is the people were um, taking a prominent figure. And there were several prominent figures in the early church, right? Just to name a few here, uh, Christ himself, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and they were latching onto, attaching themselves to this leader saying, hey, this is the hill I'm going to die on. I'm one of uh, these people, right? I'm the guy that follows Paul. I'm the guy that's faithful to Apollos. I'm the gal that is all about Cephas, right? Um, and they continue on. And so just to speculate for a moment, okay, um, and he's going to go on to talk about this. There, there's several reasons they could have attached themselves to one or the other, right? It could have been the idea of preaching. We know that Apollos was uh, an excellent preacher. He's talked about in the book of Acts, he was so eloquent, right? It's almost like when uh, Jonathan Edwards' wife talked about George Whitfield. She said people would cry just at the way he pronounced Mesopotamia. You know, it was like Apollos was this guy, all right? He was very eloquent. And Paul is actually going to go on for the next couple of chapters to compare him to Apollos and say, look, I didn't come with eloquent words. And Corinth was located in a place where 
they would have had lots of eloquent orators in the Greek talking about Homer and other things. It would have been amazing for them. Now, I'm not dogging on Apollos, and I don't think Paul is either, but that could be something. Maybe it's the preaching styles. Maybe it's the emphasis, right? You got, oh, well, Paul, he's like the founder of the church. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. I tag on with him. Or someone's like, well, I'm actually, I'm a Jew, so I kind of relate more with Peter. Um, and then you got the people that are like, look, my only creed is Christ. No other, no other uh, statements of faith or creed shall be mine. Which, it, obviously, when he says, making fun of them, these guys weren't genuine. Like, hey, guys, Christ is Lord. They were obviously doing something nefarious by pulling Christ's name out there. But nonetheless, as I rant, there were political factions going on. People were attaching themselves to certain leaders that probably had certain emphasis or something like that. And I want to point out that it wasn't that the leaders that were drawing the people to them, but it was the people kind of creating this division. We, like, we know that Peter wasn't doing that. Paulus wasn't doing that in the church. Paul wasn't doing that in the church. He's rebuking them for it, right? And so these people were taking their pet issues or pet doctrines or pet things and they were saying, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This is where I'm going to emphasize. This is how I'm going to stake my claim here rather than on the things that probably really matter. So we continue. The second thing, which I think plays into this and may not be explicit in the text, but we'll read another text too, is self-exaltation. What was the cause of division was people were exalting themselves above others. They were doing this by attaching themselves to, once again, certain leaders with certain pet issues and certain things that they wanted to really emphasize. You've got to remember the church at Corinth, because of their location, and, and um, Cor talked a lot about this, but because of where they were, they were in a very self-exalting culture. It's just part of, part of what they swam in, just like us in modern-day America, right? It's all about self all the time, everywhere. You've been trained since you were two to think you are a gold star and you are awesome, and no one can tell you any differently. You can do whatever you want. It's not true. I'm not, never going to be able to dunk a basketball without a trampoline, okay? It's just not true. I came close once. I can, you know, back in my heyday. But anyway, so they're exalting themselves. They live in this culture where this is a part of it, okay? And I want to just look to, I mentioned this argument goes all the way through chapter 4, and I want to just look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says this. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And he goes on to say, look, you got everything in Christ. You guys are kings is what he tells them, which I love that. We should greet each other. What's up, king? You know, that's what we should do. He's saying here, look, I've made this argument, right? Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. He's given all these analogies to them in the book of 1 Corinthians so that they wouldn't get puffed up. He's saying, look, what gift do you have that you didn't receive? If you received it all by grace, then why are you boasting in it? There was this boastful, self-exalting attitude in the Corinthian church that caused them to divide. And if we can be honest, many, many Many divisions in the church are caused by pride. They're caused by self-exalting. They're caused by not being willing to outdo one another in showing honor. They're caused by not being willing to give preference to others, their needs before yours. Basic things of the faith that we ought to do. And Paul is catching on to this. Number three. They cause division by allowing the enemy to sow disunity and create factions in the first place. 
this obviously continued to be a problem. We get in 2 Corinthians, here's what he says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting verse 5, he says, Look, now if anyone's caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Right? Paul's like, hey, I wasn't a part of this. Somebody caused you pain, and they did it to you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So he's saying, look, clearly someone sinned against you. He messed up. He caused you pain. Like that's punishment enough. He's already caused you lots of pain. You should rather turn in love to forgive him so that he wouldn't go into excessive sorrow and make shipwreck of his faith, right? It's a call to forgiveness. Number eight, so, or, or verse eight. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is saying, look, if I've forgiven anybody, he's writing about this man, there's some speculation if it's the man in 1 Corinthians who he says has nothing to do with, or someone else. Nonetheless, this man sinned, and he's got excessive sorrow. He's saying, bring him back into the fold. He's saying, look, if you forgive him, I forgive him. And if I forgive anybody, it's not been for mine, like own personal thing, but it's been for your sake because we're not going to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs. What does he mean by that? What he means is that Satan's design is to destroy and divide the church. And we are not ignorant of that fact. We read about it all throughout the scriptures. He is, uh, he's, uh, what's the word, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, right? His goal is nothing but to kill and steal and destroy, right? We're not ignorant of that. We know that. We know there's a real enemy. So we should forgive one another. Why? Because they deserve forgiveness? No, not because of that. I mean, none of us do, right? So it's not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we ought to forgive them because God in Christ forgave us. Amen? That's why we forgive. Look, it's very easy to think high-level, ethereal, um, abstractly about forgiveness. It's really easy to say, look, if I'm in a situation, someone sins against me, what do I do? Forgive them, obviously. Boom. Jesus said 70 times 7. Let's do it. But then what happens when someone personally and maybe even vindictively sins against you, then what do you do, right? Well, we get bitter, we gossip, we get frustrated, we allow bitterness to creep up and cause division and dissension, and we start to slander, we start to malign, or maybe we just outright attack them to their face and have want nothing to do with them, right? Why is that? Because we're failing to understand that the Lord has forgiven us, that you were dead, you were dead in your sins, and Christ made you alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. There's not one thing you have good in your life or in your attitude or in your behavior and character that Christ did not give you as a gift. Therefore, don't boast like you gave it to yourself. But we must forgive because we're not unaware of his schemes. Look, anytime you get in an argument, a fight, a dissension with a brother or sister, just know it's possible because simply they just sinned against you and they messed up or you sinned against them and you messed up. But always know that behind the veil, there is also Satan. Now, I'm not saying that excuses us from responsibility, but it definitely motivates us to forgive and get past it and get over it and stop being so petty. And I don't mean to make light of your situations. I know when people sin against you, it's very hard to overcome those things. And it may cause your relationship with that person to never be the same. And that's just a reality of life, but it doesn't mean it needs to cause disunity. Keep in mind, 
what Jesus said about the church. Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What that means is that a church cannot be destroyed from the outside. It can only be destroyed from the inside. So division, slander, dissension, sinning against one another, not forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave us. That's what kills a church. That's what destroys a church, not the enemy attacking us from without. Look, they could kill us. The devil could send soldiers to kill us, and he could not destroy this church. But you have ought against your brother, you don't deal with it, that could destroy it. It's an amazing truth to ponder and think about. And an amazing responsibility we have. Okay, number four, and probably in, uh, I guess, kind of totality, they cause division by forgetting the foundation of unity in the first place. Verse 13 says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, The obvious answer is no. They were not baptized in the name of Paul. No, Paul was not crucified for them. And no, Christ is never divided. Right? Those are obvious answers to the question. But what Paul is sarcastically doing to them is reminding them the foundation for unity in the first place. Just like he appealed to the name of Christ to do these things, he's reminding them, look, Christ is, the, the foundation is the gospel. Christ was crucified for us. And he bought us with his blood. And he also bought that unity with his blood. And it's in him that all things hold together. Right, And he's going to go on in some later chapters to talk about, look, the ear can't tell the eye. Look, I, I don't need you. I'm hearing just fine. I don't need to see, buddy. It, it, you can't do that, right? Because we're all a part of a body of Christ. And this is true both with the universal church and the local church. So Christ is not divided. Therefore, we cannot be divided. This is the foundational truth that he's reminding them to hold to. Okay, There is no other gospel or other banner by which we are under except Christ himself. And it's that very thing that will hold us together. And if we continue down, or if Corinth continued down the road of schism, it would be to essentially ignore the gospel and commit themselves to something entirely different rather than the gospel. And it also would be to ignore the very spirit of their baptism, right? What does Paul say about baptism? He said it's one baptism, one Lord, one Savior, one Spirit, right? One Father by which we are all named. So to be against each other like this and to create factions is to go against that spirit of baptism. That's why he says in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love Paul. He starts this sentence so sure of himself. He's like, look, I'm glad I only baptized these two guys. Oh, yeah, actually, I baptized this household too. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure if I baptized anyone else, but I'm glad I didn't, right? I love it that he just kind of sticks with his guns there and doesn't readdress it. Um, It's just flowing out of him. But he says, and his point is that he's glad he didn't baptize a bunch of people. Why? Because that's just another thing these people would use to cause division, and he wants nothing to do with that. Because it's wrong. He's saying, look, I'm glad I didn't do it. Because you guys are going to be like, yeah, I was baptized in Paul's name. (laughs) No, you weren't. You were baptized in the name of Christ. And so he's glad that he didn't do that. I'm sure it's not because he doesn't love baptism. But then he clarifies in verse 70. He says, look, for Christ did not send me 
to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this is mainly for next week's sermon, so I promised myself I wouldn't get into this too deeply because I'm just going to be stealing from the next guy, all right? But um, Paul is beginning the conversation of the gospel presentation is not about being eloquent. It's not about being lofty, which the Corinthians would have probably really appreciated in their culture, but it's about the power of the gospel. And once again, I don't think he's ripping on Apollos. I just think he's saying, hey, none of that really matters. Paul's like, look, I purposely came with just simple words of the gospel so that you would not hang on me and say, oh, Paul's my guy, but that you would hang on the power of Christ and Christ alone. Okay, that's what he's arguing here. Once again, this is undergirding the whole idea that Christ is the foundation. You take that away, everything falls, right? That's what the church is built on. He is the chief cornerstone. And then you have the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the word of God. And then upon that, we are built as the church. You take any of those things away, the foundation, the cornerstone, you fall, you die, it's over. That's what he's saying. Now, I promise I wanted to sprint to the practicals. I don't have much time, so I want to get into them. I want to talk about a path forward. Um, There's lots of things we could say. The obvious from the text would be that Paul, once again, is calling us to be, have unity in speech, unity of mind, unity of uh, lordship of Jesus Christ, right? And those are all good things. But I want to talk about not just defense, because I think we get it from the text. Don't be divisive. You can't cause division. Don't create a schism. But I also want to talk about the offensive. What do we do? What does it look like? And this is not an exhaustive list. I could probably pull everybody and I'd get a lot better answers. These are just a few things I thought of that I think would be helpful for us to consider as we consider what it looks like to walk this out together in unity. So here's just a few things. Some of this I got from Scripture. Some of this I just hope is helpful. Number one, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Okay? Just want to remind you, you're not important. Okay? You're not that important. You got to hear it. You you should wake up, look in the mirror, and say, I'm not that big of a deal. You know? And just go about your life. And if you did that, you'd have a happy life, I promise. Now look, you're important to Christ. I don't want to take that away from you. He knows every hair on your head. He says, aren't you of more value than many sparrows? And not one of them falls to the ground and dies without God saying, die now. He's not saying he's masochistic and likes killing birds. He's saying that he cares about us. But you're not that important. You're really not. Your opinion, despite what social media has taught you, is not that important. Okay? You should submit yourself to Christ. You should have the attitude and mindset that I want to give preference to other people. That I want to love other people. That I want to hear what other people have to say. This is just basic human decency. But when we can do it, it's an amazing thing. And Paul says that in the scriptures. Actually, maybe in the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm not sure. But he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, okay? Number two, have charity in all things. Charity is a word we don't use that much anymore because the King James uh, is no longer our Bible of choice. It's very sad for me. I love the King James Bible. But often, uh, it's charity's love in action, right? Charity is saying, look, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt despite what I feel like. Right? Someone sins against you or you, oh, I heard so-and-so's talking about me, you know, whatever. They're saying these things. Well, just go to them and say, hey, you know what? I don't think this is true, but I heard this. Is it true? And then if it's true, well, then you got to deal with it, okay? And if it's not true, then just trust them. You know, look, I know people are going to, 
they're going to, for lack of a better term, they're going to hurt your feelings, okay? They're going to uh, betray you to some degree, but we have to be willing to look past that, to extend charity, and to say, look, I'm going to trust you anyways. I'm going to believe the best in you anyways, because if not, what, what are we doing? There's, there's no way to move forward in true unity. We'll always be standoffish and divisive. Number three, forgive one another. Look, real sins happen, and they really hurt. That's just true. And if you stay a part of the church for long enough, any church you go to, that's going to happen to you. But Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We need no greater truth than that to to extend forgiveness, charity, and love to one another. And if we do that, it's amazing what happens. Number four, don't be petty. Let things go, okay? There are some things that you and I hold on to that are just silly. And you know what I love? I love when you're not in the situation, but you're talking to someone who's in one of those situations being very petty, and you can look into their life and just say, my goodness, grow up. You know, you wouldn't tell them that because you're kind and loving, and you're extending charity, but really, you can see it from the outside in. You're like, dude, get over it. I don't care. Why is that such a big deal? But then when you're in it, it's like you're just like a, like a toddler. You know, you're just like worried about things. And I'm not saying that make fun of you. I know that, once again, I don't want to be too jovial. I know there's lots of really tough situations. But we truly are petty. I mean, just think about the amount of time you have left in this life. Think about what really matters. And as you start to go through those things, some things just aren't that important. Number five, understand who the real enemy is. Uh, I know we talked about this at length. I won't go into it. But it's not your fellow congregation member. Now, every once in a while, there is a wolf that sneaks in and they must be kicked out of the church and it's a whole thing. But by and large, it's two people that may just have fundamental disagreements and they need to learn to disagree, to disagree and move on. Remember who your real enemy is and what he really wants and don't let him get the best of you or your fellow congregation. Number six, let scripture inform you far more than the world does. If you're getting your relationship advice on how not to have division in the church from YouTubers, you've done something wrong. Go to the scriptures. There's a balm for every wound in the word, and it's amazing when you actually listen to it and you do it, what can happen for the fight together for unity. It's an amazing thing, and the world doesn't know how to do it. Number seven, ask Christ to help for promotion of unity. Do you pray for the church's unity? This is important. We ought to. We should pray against the enemy's schemes for this church. We should pray against our bitterness and our inability to forgive and you fill in the blank, whatever else might be causing it. Um, and then maybe within that is also pray for the con- your fellow congregant members. It's an amazing what happens. When you start praying for somebody, it's a lot harder to be bitter at them. When you start praying for someone, it's amazing that you can't hate them despite trying to. That's by design. That's why God tells us to do it, right? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. If we can't even pray for our church members, how are we going to pray for our enemies? The answer is you're not. And number eight, lastly, is strive for the mind of Christ that is yours in Christ. I want to read one more text as we pray together today. And it's out of Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, I'm going, to pray, or I'm going to read this, we'll pray together, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church. So let's read it. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is yours. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come right now and we just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of grace that we have believed. God, we ask right now that if there be any divisions among us, any factions, any petty issues that we cling to, any sin that we're not forgiving or sin that we're committing and not repenting of, and we could go on and on. God, if any of this exists in Providence Community Church, Lord, I ask right now that you would take it away. God, that you would heal us by the power of your gospel and allow us in true faithfulness and joy and unity to strive together side by side under the banner of your name, your son's name, Jesus Christ. God, help us to feel and know deeply the forgiveness of our sins that we might feel grace and compassion and joy in forgiving others. God, take all gossip and slander and those kinds of things out of here as well. We long not to be that way, but to trust you and to be faithful. Help us to outdo one another in showing honor. Help us to love your church, to strive together in spirit and truth, and to promote unity in the body because it honors you. It glorifies you. It makes much of your name, and that's why we exist. And not to mention the love that we feel from one to another is an amazing witness to both us and the world that you have loved us and it is your presence among us. So help us to value that right now as we take of your supper together, as we celebrate and worship, and as we go about our lives as, as a church. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.